0: Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. The streets of New York are a recent memory for the talented and much-respected photographer. Yet, here he is, hiding in the Indian hawthorn bushes, waiting for a moment to snap a rare and coveted photo of the Canadian female serial killer, who's reported to be living somewhere on the islands of Guadalupe. Others have tried and failed to locate her, after her release from prison in Montreal, only 12 years after her sentence began. Mental health professionals were unable to agree on the danger she would present if she were to be released, but were unable to influence decisions about her incarceration because her lawyers had worked out a plea deal to ensure she only served time for manslaughter. Now married and with three children, she had fled Canada and the photographer's friend and journalist had managed to do the unbelievable. She found Carla. Not only found her, but walked straight up past her mailbox and approached her front door. In an effort to discover how Paula Todd found her, she agreed to sit and converse with her. A relative online gave it away. Now, Paula wanted the photographer to secretly return and snap a photo of the private and very paranoid mother of three. It would not be easy now that she was aware someone from the media had located her. She would be on such high alert that it literally would be like hunting prey and hoping for one shot at his target. Her desire for privacy didn't concern the photo shooter. After hearing she may be involved in teaching young children as a teacher's aide, he and Paula both were in agreement that it was more important to determine if that was true. Also, the Mahaffey and French families had to deal with the media fallout from Carla's crimes, so why shouldn't she? Not to mention the suffering of her own family, is unimaginable. As a photographer, he had no real desire to hunt down Carla. He was horrified by serial killers. As a father, he was determined to help Paula discover if the miscreation was indeed working her way back into a scenario where she had access to children, especially in a community that was unaware of the dangers that she could present. For four days, the photographer awoke at early hours to drive by and try and catch the elusive Carla that may be less suspicious in the off hours. He drove around all day, trailing and following people he thought may lead him to her. Spending days trying to work on her neighbors, to agree to look the other way as he sat in the shrubbery between their home and hers. The pressure was on when they finally relented because he would be leaving the island the next day. There would be no later. He would have to endure the heat and humidity while staying on high alert for even a second's glance at his target, all while remaining unnoticed. The viewfinder on his camera steaming, and a group of goats seem to be curious about what is happening and appear to be heading over to inspect the situation. He fears he may be outed as the wind breezing through the leaves suddenly becomes a puff of wind. The branches sway and smack her hair pulled back with a black band and wearing a dark sleeveless summer top sweetly accented with summer flowers she is picking up a small child in a green t-shirt arms reaching his camera bursts into flaps of four frames per second and before he can perceive that the moment is veritable she disappears the only way he knows it wasn't an aberration, is the sound of a slamming door. I am your host, Bonnie Lee, and this is Writing About Crime. Today, we will be talking about Carla Homolka, so please don't leave me. Born on May 4th, 1970, in Port Credit, Ontario, in a townhouse by Linwell Road. Not far from Lake Ontario and near the famous Niagara Falls region, Carla Homolka is raised by her parents, Karel and Dorothy Homolka, along with her two sisters. Carla was the eldest of the other two, Lori now Logan, and Tammy Lynn. Dorothy was an administration assistant at a local geriatric clinic where Karel was an immigrant to Canada from Czechoslovakia who made his living as a traveling salesman. Carla told her school friends that he was an art dealer, when in fact, he traveled from place to place selling velvet paintings at various markets. One of his best sellers and personal favorites was a Elvis Presley. The family played his music a lot, and Carla was a big fan as a child, telling her friends, love me tender, was her favorite. It had also been reported that he sold other household items such as lamps and vases. Carell was known to have some issues with alcohol and while Carla was growing up she would sometimes see her father arguing and drunkenly fighting with her mother. Still Carla was referred to as a daddy's girl and she often got her way with him when her mother denied her. Carell's anger could be directed at Carla and her sisters too when he was drunk and he would call them terrible names like whore and slut but she always forgave him. Some observe this type of conditioning during childhood can result in issues as an adult. The effect of ambivalence can create a feeling of fear or worry when a child later becomes attached to other adults They can sometimes be obsessed with the concern that their partner will just abruptly stop loving them. And they can have a tendency to overreact when a close relationship falls apart or ends. There's no indications that Carla or her siblings were abused or neglected in any way. Their middle-class lifestyle and well-rounded social life, as well as being involved in the community, made them a relatively happy family. The only problems were seemingly around Carell's drinking, which he sometimes lost control of. In her early days at Parnell Public School, Carla was always dolled up, wearing dresses with lots of frills, her blonde hair wavy and long. She loved to draw and had an obsession with Barbie, telling her friends that she would one day have a life like Barbie and a handsome husband like Ken. She was also enchanted by the Disney princesses. She loved their perfect, angelic style and their sweet personas. She enjoyed planting peach pits in the sand, and she was full of devotion for her pet cat, treating it like her own little baby. And her love for animals would continue into her teen years as she fawned over her dog, Chelsea. In other aspects, Carla was particular and focused. Some observed her making sure all of her schoolwork was just right and that when she would color with her classmates, she was very committed to perfectly etching colors within the lines and they described her as fussy about it. She was a superior student and many people would go on to refer to her as very intelligent. In fact, she had tested an IQ level of 132 when she was older, which would put her in the range of superior intelligence. Carla was involved in a lot of school programs, everything from choir to dance to musicals, and did tutoring with other students. Most of her teachers reported enjoying having Carla in their classes, although she was considered kind of bossy with the other students, and they referred to her as a princess. Others described her as stubborn and domineering. She lacked skills to compromise with children her age, She needed to be in charge and have control, or she would lose interest and want to change the direction. Even with adults, Carla was inclined to speak her mind. During her early years, Carla suffered from asthma and spent a lot of time in and out of hospitals. And as a young girl, she enjoyed art, particularly drawing, and had a fondness for animals. It's widely repeated, that Carla killed her friend's hamster by throwing it out a window, which is true. She and her friend had attached the hamster to a makeshift parachute, and Carla pitched it out the window. Although it could have been that she didn't believe the hamster would be harmed, making a soft landing as one expects when using a parachute. It all goes wrong when her friend is mortified and in tears, while Carla reportedly was not upset and seemed to have rather enjoyed it. Who's to say? But the bigger insight is in her later behavior, when she insisted on digging up the hamster weeks later, so that she could examine the carcass. She also enjoyed reading books from the youth detective and mystery series, The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. It began what was later to be a more serious fascination with crime, and extended more into the occult. It was into her teens when she began to grow out of the sweet Carla that she had been known as and became more devious. Once she began attending Sir Winston Churchill Secondary School, she purportedly began enjoying playing tricks on her peers, trying to scare them. Carla didn't concern herself with wearing the same style as her friends in school, and she started to wear only black and she played off as unconcerned about fitting in. She was intent on creating the image of a dark rebel who didn't care what impression she made. Carla was not isolated though. She did have friends. They all shared some interest in the dark arts, and they would get together and play around with calling spirits and other harmless indulgences. As Carla matured, She began dating a young man named Doug and they began experimenting with drugs and having sex. Not highly unusual for high school teenagers, but she became more strange and began to become more obsessed with death and even flirted with cutting herself to see what it was like. She showed some classmates of hers a scar, but many determined it was something done explicitly for attention. It was reported the Carla began to develop sadistic and masochistic fantasies in her late teens. One school friend recounted her saying, "'You know what I'd like to do? "'I'd like to put dots all over somebody's body "'and take a knife and then play connect the dots "'and then pour vinegar all over them.'" She enjoyed shocking her friends, even going as far as to depict her first sexual experience describing bondage, strangulation, wearing a dog collar, and vulgar dirty talk. But later, it was discovered that the encounter was in reality quite normal and didn't involve any of Carla's exaggerations. Yet, Carla performed well in school and remained popular, as her crowd named themselves the Diamond Club. Carla, being a leader in the clique, had a reputation for being tough-minded and most didn't like to be engaged in any type of dispute with her she always had to win the club's association was based on young girls that wanted to meet wealthy attractive successful mature men that would keep them in a life of luxury and live like princesses that was carla's dream for the future but for the time Carla was working part-time at a pet store while going to Winston Churchill High School. She would continue working with veterinarians after her high school graduation. It led to a career path, as she would later be full-time at the Thorold Veterinary Center in 1988 as a veterinary assistant, or a vet tech. Later, she started working at the Martindale Veterinary Clinic in St. Catharines leaving because Carla claimed she didn't like the way the veterinarians treated the animals. Carla met Paul when she was 17 years old at a hotel restaurant while attending a pet conference in Toronto. Paul had shown up with his friend who had together designed familiar pickup tactics. He was charming and attractive, but had a concerning history already. Paul Bernardo was born on August 27th, 1964. He was born with a dark marking on his head, and it was deemed to be a transient blood clot, and it did dissolve over time. He also seemed to have trouble learning to speak as a toddler. When he was seen by a doctor, it turned out that he had skin that attached his mouth to his palate, preventing him from being able to speak properly. When it was discovered it had to be corrected with surgery he suffered some speech impediment during his youth but he could manage to speak much better after recovering from the surgery he would however suffer from severe self-esteem issues that related to his trouble with clear speech and by grade four his teacher was already describing him as talkative and outgoing He was raised in Scarborough, Ontario, a suburb of Toronto. He came from a well-to-do home, but it was rife with dysfunction. Unlike Carla being the eldest sibling, Paul was the baby of the family, after his brother and his sister, David and Debbie. His mother, Marilyn, was an adopted child, raised in a happy home by a wealthy lawyer and his wife. She had met and married Paul's father, Kenneth, in 1960, after her father refused her marrying a previous man. He wasn't up to the family expectations. Kenneth, however, made his living working with marble and tile, and it was a good living. Yet, he was abusive, He would go on to have a criminal history that included child molestation more than one charge. It is suspected that he was guilty of molesting his own daughter, Paul's sister, systematically. Sometimes, while other family members were around and claimingly unaware of what he was doing, or they did, but failed to do anything about it. It is also said that he inappropriately fondled a young girl in 1975, and that resulted in a criminal charge. He was reported to be a window peeper and voyeur, watching local women through their windows at night. He was once caught peeping on a young girl, and a neighbor reported it to the police. When they made a visit to his home to question him about it, he was rattled. It didn't satiate his thirst for young girls, but it did force him to be more cautious. The marriage began to fall apart, and Marilyn would finally locate two sisters that were her blood relatives. She would often leave the home on weekends to go and spend time with them, leaving the children to fend for themselves. She struggled with a thyroid illness that left her unhealthy and she was gaining weight until she was in the obese territory. She was crippled by depression and began to live in the family's basement, where she would often binge on snacks, while the cupboards upstairs were empty. She stopped doing any housework and didn't prepare meals. Paul's siblings struggled during these stressful times, as the family was so dislocated Paul, however, seemed to be the least visibly affected. He was flourishing as an upbeat and happy kid, apparently unaffected by the turmoil of his family life. Other extended family and friends described the Boy Scout as cute and a great kid. When involved with the Boy Scouts at 10 years old, it's said that he gained a compulsion to set fires. Yet, he was one of the favourite camp counsellors with the kids during summer camps, and he seemed to enjoy being around them and sharing his knowledge. As Paul headed into high school at the Sir Wilfrid Laurier Collegiate, he began to act out. After his mother told him at the age of 16 that he was conceived as the result of an affair, throwing a photo of a man named Bill into his room and blurting it out. She had gone back to her first choice to marry and had an affair, later returning to Kenneth. He began to disrespect his mother and treat her terribly. He was revolted by her and he was very resentful. It would seem that he did have development issues that impacted his mental health as he matured. He still suffered from social anxiety and to overcome it, He used control as a way to feel in power. Although he was never accused of physically hurting his mother, it was well documented that he did verbally abuse her, and in particularly vulgar terms, calling her a whore and a slob. She would snap back at him that he was an evil bastard child, or simply a bastard, and it greatly upset Paul. He would also witness his father physically abuse her and witness him calling her It instead of using her name. His issues with females began to spiral. Paul's friend Vin observed that he seemed to go for older girls around the age of 16. He was well liked and had a reputation of being sweet and kind. But Vin noticed he seemed to flip and became more interested in younger girls. His friend felt that it was around the time that Bernardo found out he was not his father's biological son. He had an anger inside of him. And Paul began collecting pornography, but not your average hormonal boy's erotic images. He was developing a proclivity for seeing women defecate and urinate, as well as pornography that was violent. Paul would indulge himself outside in women's windows at night while hiding in the bushes outside of their homes. Yet, Paul was considered a very fit and attractive young man and had many girlfriends. The first girl he dated named Nadine Brammer was the one that Paul lost his virginity to and it's also the first one where he became controlling and overprotective. She becomes involved with his friend Steve and breaks off the relationship. Paul burned every gift she gave him in an act of rage. In Paul's yearbook, he's described as a stud who planned to get rich and famous and move to California, where he would check out girls on the beach. The blurb was punctuated with, Paul says the only way to go through life is is to go for it. Bernardo begins going to local clubs and scouting for girls, and his taste for degrading and abusing his female companions began to take hold. As he went on to the University of Toronto, he began to be physically abusive to his young partners. He seemed to be growing an enjoyment out of intertwining sex with admiring girls and physically hurting them. One partner, named Nancy, said he began to hang out with more macho types, and that's when the change started. He began to speak very crass, and she was disgusted by his frequent comments about anal sex. It made her very uncomfortable. And later, he dated another young girl, who was more submissive and agreeable, named Jennifer She said he only liked anal sex and had a proclivity for using wine bottles in their sexual play. She drew the line when he attended her graduation and then drove her out of the area to have sex and tried to strangle her. She said he was very apologetic afterward, but she was done with him. And he continued to search for girls that were young and focused in on those who were not particularly complex and had a low self-image. He could control them easier. Paul began to force anal sex on his partners and make degrading comments in public towards them. And as time progressed, he was unable to maintain real relationships. He would jump from charming one girl to another, often overlapping. He became more offensive and physically violent with women. At some points, he would even threaten their lives if they were to reveal the way that he treated them to anyone. It was reported that he had developed a fantasy of creating a virgin farm where he could breed virgin girls to rape and keep at his disposal. His friends saw it as just a joke. It would later prove to be a fixation that he never outgrew, and by 1986, A restraining order is granted against Paul for making a harassing and obscene phone call to Van's ex-girlfriend. One girlfriend, Jennifer Thompson, had threatened to go to the police about his abusive behavior. And this apparently put the brakes on his dating life for a short time. It had an effect on him, but it was short-lived. Paul had various jobs when he was a youngster. Everything from a paper route to being a security guard to waiting tables. Paul was later recruited into Amway with his friends Scott and Alan, now deemed a type of pyramid scheme. At the time, it was presented as a way to sell products to people from your own home and be your own boss while making a good salary incorporated into their model was reading materials meant to motivate and inspire new entrepreneurs and pairing up new associates with other inspired recruiters to keep your head in the game. Paul fell into it with both feet, becoming obsessed with self-help and motivational books and recordings. Some were get-rich-quick types, while others preached to the do-or-die attitude of getting what you want, or tips on how to be more persuasive to get your way with people. Paul didn't make it in the Amway universe, but he took the philosophy along with him and he used it in his regular life to manipulate people with false charms. He had his walls decorated with handwritten inspirational reminders like time is money, I don't meet the competition, I cause it. And a photo of a sports car with poverty sucks written underneath. By the time he was enrolled at the University of Toronto, he was using his skills to go out with his guy pals and compete to pick up different girls each night. They would brag to each other about the various successes they had and how persuasive they were often telling lies about who they were and what their intentions were. Paul and his pal Van began selling illegal cigarettes for cash, and when Paul completed his secondary education, he found a job as a junior accountant at Price Waterhouse. At that time, Paul was able to play the part of a well-to-do young and attractive businessman from the big city. He had a preppy billionaire boys club and Ken doll style that would be very appealing to a young Barbie type blonde that he would soon meet. By now, Paul was searching for a simple, impressionable, beautiful, and most importantly, young girl, one that he could manipulate into cooperating with his dark fantasies. On May 4th, 1987, in Scarborough, Ontario, the first rape in a series of up to 24 occurs. A young woman is attacked moments after getting off of a transit bus at 1am near her home in Scarborough. That spring, the assaults continue and it becomes clear that a sexual sadist is targeting young women in the area. Most of the attacks occur outdoors, although one victim was attacked when their home was broken into. The assaults continue through to April 6, 1991. Paul would stalk his victims and occasionally videotape them, and then attack them using a knife to maintain control. The reports have some similar details, including the brutality of the crimes and the offender's need for power and control during the assaults, that is above and beyond in severity compared to most. Victims reporting that their rapist makes disturbing comments during the assault and also demands they repeat degrading and demeaning statements back to him while claiming that he would make threats to scare them away from reporting to the police. In one attack on July 27th of 1987, one victim fights back, but she's brutally beaten before she escapes. Paul is a psychopathic, narcissistic, sexual sadist by most psychological professional standards. The infliction of pain is not the excitement. It's the suffering, physically and mentally, the victim endures that arouses him. He can be charming and engaging, or vicious and dangerous, as the environment warrants. He will lie and manipulate to serve his own wants with no conscience. To him, there is nothing outside of what he wants and how he wants it. He can't see the world in any other terms other than how it affects him. That Met with his obsession with virgin young girls and a desire for power is what most likely drives those desires. As police in the area begin to watch local neighborhoods at night, focusing on bus stops and people possibly lurking behind shrubs and bushes, one officer discovered a suspect hiding under a tree watching a bus stop. He appeared to be lurking for someone. He pursued the suspect, but he got away without being identified. Scarborough is upper class and a nice community. Most felt that the rapist couldn't be local, believing rather that a sick stranger from outside of that suburb was stalking in the area. On October 17th of 1987, 17-year-old Carla and 23-year-old Paul meet in a hotel restaurant called Howard Johnson's. Carla would later claim that when they met, she knew she would marry him. Carla and her friend Debbie Purdy were attending a convention for veterinary professionals. And Paul, recently having gone through a breakup, ends up at the same restaurant with a friend named Van Smyrness. He wants to take him out to talk about it. The ladies were sitting at a table relaxing when Paul and his friend noticed them. As soon as Carla and Paul were introduced, their chemistry was obvious, many defining it as lust at first sight. Paul teased Carla for sitting in her pajama pants in the public restaurant and eating grilled cheese. He ended up joining Carla in her suite that very night. It was later told that the two ended up in Carla's room only an hour or so after their initial meeting. Carla was no match for the big city boy's charm. Although she was very smart and strong-willed herself, she was driven to meet a successful and charming guy to get her out of the little suburb and begin the bigger life that she was dreaming of. Her focus from the beginning was not what he was in front of her, but how she pictured they could be in the future. She would give up a lot to get to that place if she had to. In an unusual move for Paul, after a one night stand, he asks for her phone number. Paul and Carla begin a relationship immediately. When Paul discovers early on that Carla is not a virgin, he's very disappointed. But he continues to pursue a relationship with her regardless. He confesses a fantasy that he wants a sexually subservient French maid or a sex slave. That didn't deter her from his magnetism. At first, the age difference of six years seems daunting to Carla's parents, but eventually they soften to him as they see he has a good job and really takes care of Carla. He spends a lot of time around the Hamulka household her mother even calling him her weekend son. He drives out twice a week to spend time with her and already it seems he is getting some control of Carla. In The meantime, the Scarborough rapes seem to stop for a short while, but a task force is forming by the Metro Police. Paul begins the usual sequence of a sexual sadist gaining control. It's a typical routine that can follow a distinct pattern. You identify someone who's vulnerable to your control and they are more susceptible than most. You enchant them with attention and that feeling of being the center of your world. Gifts, compliments and flirtation to pull them in and make them never want to be out of your sunshine. Once it's clear that a sexual sadist has managed to have their victim fall for them, the natural next step is for the sadist to start adjusting their perception of what is regular or normal in sexual situations, expanding their comfort zone and what they're willing to participate in that they may not have ever desired in the beginning. Lisa, a good friend of Carla's, discovers a note created by Carla called The List, where she lists her core values about eating healthy and exercising and having good hygiene routines, but then goes on to give herself disturbing reminders about Paul, including things like, never let anyone know our relationship is anything but perfect. Don't talk back to Paul. Be a perfect girlfriend for Paul. If Paul asks for a drink, bring him one quickly and happily. Remember, you're stupid. Remember, you're ugly. Remember, you're fat. And lastly, she writes, I don't know why I tell you these things because you never change. On May 4th, 1988, Paul gives Carla a promise ring and he declares his intention to marry her. Carla's parents are happy for the couple. It won't keep him loyal though. Paul begins a new relationship with a girl named Anna and spends time with her while he's in Toronto at the same time that he's seeing Carla. He also begins to comment about Carla's younger sister, Tammy. And he covets the fact that she's still a virgin He doesn't want her to lose her virginity and somehow he demands that Carla make sure she doesn't. The rapes in Scarborough are becoming more frequent. When the search began for the Scarborough rapist, police set up night watch surveillance, decoys, and doubled surveillance in the area. A hotline was set up and hundreds of chips start rolling in. Town hall meetings are held, to keep residents informed and warning of a predator that was lurking in their area. By mid-November on the 17th of 1988, the Toronto Police Force forms a task force to catch and arrest the Scarborough rapist. They obtain a really good description of the attacker from his 11th victim who sees Bernardo's face. A computer composite is generated and they give the image wide circulation and receive over 16,000 tips over the next few weeks. Three people identify a local man named Paul Bernardo. It's reported that friends and previous girlfriends are suspicious of Paul, and they believe that he could be the suspect. The image does certainly seem similar, and friends of Paul's begin to tease him. He jokes back, acknowledging that he does look like the image. A local bank teller even contacts police saying she saw Bernardo in the bank and was sure he matched the sketch. Investigators meet with Paul and they come to his family home. They question him briefly and feel he's not someone to investigate immediately. He did resemble the sketch but they were not compelled to look further into him because no bells went off during the discussion. He was a young, employed, ambitious, and charming young man living in the suburbs with his parents. Investigators would go on to collect over 50,000 samples of DNA in the case. So Paul continues to live in Scarborough while Carla lives at home with her parents in St. Catharines. On December 24th of 1989, with Carla's family's blessings, the couple is engaged, and they set a wedding date of June 29th, 1991. During the summer of 1989, Carla meets a 13-year-old girl at the Thorold Veterinary Clinic where she's working, and becomes friends with her. She's referred to her later only as Jane Doe. By December 5th of that year, Carla starts working at the Martindale Animal Clinic, and it's here that she learns about powerful anesthetics like halothane and triazolam. Carla has a new job, but early 1990, Paul loses his accounting job at Price Waterhouse. Although some say he was not a fully credited accountant, he had seemingly been making a good salary as a junior accountant and the reason that he was terminated is unclear. Likely his nighttime cruising and psychopathic personality had some influence on that outcome, but he's spending so much time with Carla and now unemployed, so he, with the family's support, decides to move in with the Homolkas. The relationship propels forward and starts taking shape. He compels her fashion choices, how she eats, and what she should think. She seemingly molds her likes and dislikes to Paul easily, and she gives less resistance to his controlling ways than other girls that he had dated. Even calling her fat, ugly, only encouraged Carla to submit. She didn't only comply with his deviant sexual behavior, she encouraged it and his nasty criticisms of her only resulted in the creation of her self-improvement list. Carla was the perfect match for Paul Bernardo, for the exception of her previous sexual experience. He was highly discouraged that Carla was not a virgin when they met. Paul didn't change when he started dating Carla. He just began living two lives. He was Carla's sweetheart boyfriend when he was with her, and a party guy womanizer when she was not around. But he still showers Carla with gifts and takes her out to nice dinners, but it's all on credit that will eventually put him $14,000 in debt and lead him to declare personal bankruptcy. The couple's mutual friend, Joanne, began to spend time with Carla when she was introduced to Paul's groups of acquaintances. And as she noted, Paul was always controlling Carla and who she was around. He didn't like to let Joanne and Carla hang out on their own. And when friends would call, Paul insisted on answering the phone. Joanne later put together that Paul was intentionally keeping Carla from private discussions. He did this so that she would not reveal his abuse or his methods of control. The friends didn't see any signs of physical abuse, but they did relate that he would openly call her a bitch and a slut around them. Carla, although outgoing and bubbly, would always remain obedient. After the two began their relationship, the rapes in Scarborough stopped, but then actually began to increase rather than cool down. Although he now had a regular girlfriend, Consensual sex was not scratching his itch. He needed that fear and humiliation to enjoy sex. The rest didn't keep his interest. On July 24th of 1990, during a summer trip, Paul and Carla spiked Tammy's spaghetti with Valium that Carla secured from her job at the veterinary clinic that she worked at. Paul begins to sexually assault her, but she regains consciousness So the assault is interrupted, although he did begin having sexual intercourse with her. That fall around November 20th, rounding back after interviewing suspects, Paul is brought in for questioning regarding the rapes in Scarborough. His image is so similar that his friends have taunted him, calling him by the media's moniker the Scarborough Rapist. He laughs it off among his friends, but when Paul is questioned, he appears calm and guiltless, and he even offers to provide his DNA samples of hair, blood, and saliva to the investigators. They add his samples to the others collected, and the testing process will begin, but it takes a long time before the samples will be completed, so Paul has some time for now. Other suspects are on the list and the investigators move on to work those leads. Although Paul was helpful and open with the investigation, he moves in with Carla and her family in St. Catherine's not long after the meeting. The family seems to approve of Paul. He presents as a smart and pleasant companion and is serious about spending his life with her. He admits to Carla that he was one of the people questioned about the rapes by investigators, likely as a barometer of what kind of response he would get from her. The Scarborough rape attacks seem to stop for a time without investigators understanding why, and the task force slowly dissolves, and people begin feeling safe in the neighborhood again. A few months later, the Scarborough rapist will return to the area and target a 14-year-old girl in broad daylight. He has been able to stay off the radar from the rapes long enough and is leading him to be less cautious. On December 23rd of 1990, Carla's family has a party celebrating the holidays and afterwards, Carla drugs her sister Tammy once again in order to enable Paul to take her virginity, yet would later defend the behavior by claiming that she was pressured and felt it would be a one-time thing that she could satiate him and that would be the end of it. Tammy secures the drugs from the veterinary clinic again and this time puts them in the alcoholic beverage that they serve to Tammy. She later reveals that she would obtain the drugs by either stealing them or placing them on order under the doctor's name. So nobody would question the supply and her name would still not be associated with the obtainment of the drugs used in the crimes. As the sister's parents are upstairs, the trio continues the festivities in the basement. Apparently, when Paul began using a mallet to crush the sleeping pills earlier in the evening, Carla's parents questioned what all the noise was about. They had to drive to a nearby store to finish crushing the pills. Carla told Paul not to use more than five, but wasn't sure how many he had prepared for Tammy's eggnog. When Carla's parents tie it up for the night, Tammy wants to watch a movie and continue the celebrations with Paul and Carla. Carla. As usual, they're recording the evening. Documenting every event you could imagine is something that they have always seemed to have done. Paul records everything, including the assault. When Tammy first loses consciousness, he says, Here we go. Keep her down. Upon later review, it's noticed that not only did Carla agree to help Paul by drugging her sister, she goes on to also commit the sexual assault against her, and appears a willing participant. Tammy is accidentally overdosed, and she begins to regain consciousness, but starts to vomit. She's so inebriated that she inhales her own vomit into her lungs and chokes to death. Carla and Paul try to revive her, but they were unable to. Finally, Carla panicked and called 911 without even awakening her parents upstairs. When they arrive, they assume Tammy will be pronounced dead, and it is seen as a teenager that exceeded her capacity for alcohol and accidentally perished. The death will be ruled accidental, and nobody suspects the pair of being in any way involved in her death. They're questioned, particularly about a large, unusual mark that appears to be a burn found on Tammy's face. Carla and Paul explain that she had been dragged into the bedroom and the carpet created marks. They were attempting to move Tammy into a better position with better lighting where they could see what was happening and try to administer CPR. In fact, the mark was caused by the anesthetic halothane that Carla poured on a cloth and held to her face in order to keep her incapacitated. Although she was aware it was to be administered through vapor as inspired gas, she has administered so much of the anesthetic that it pools below the skin, leaving large unusual marks on Tammy's cheek. Paul and Carla were doing laundry and running around the vacuum on the night that Tammy died. They hid evidence, dressed Tammy, and put her in the basement bedroom. When investigators began looking through the home, Carla was putting a comforter in the washing machine. She was told to remove it and place it where it was. Nothing was to be disturbed. At that point, she knows it's considered a possible crime scene. And in a photograph taken by one of the senior officers investigating the death of Carla's sister, the videotape of Tammy Homolka's rape is sitting on Carla's nightstand. No one checked to see what was on the tape and it was not collected for evidentiary purposes. Neither Paul's name or Carla's turned up on a routine name search in connecting Tammy Homolka's death because the police in Ontario never made a routine name search for Bernardo or Homoka. When Constable David Weeks was taking statements from Paul, Carla, her mother and father, as well as Lori, had received a call notifying him that Chami had expired. While Lori and Carla began to cry, Paul began crying loudly and vigorously as he hugged his knees and rocked back and forth, shaking his head and pulling his hair, yelling, no, no, no. His emotions are later more in check while they are questioned at the police station. He was defensive, and eventually he refused to answer any more questions, saying, You can't hold us if you're not going to charge us with anything, so we'll just leave. Later, on the night of Tammy's murder, Carla would comment to Paul that she feels sad about her sister's death, but isn't as devastated emotionally as he seems to be. He's severely upset about her death, and would go on to save as many of her things as he could. He even keeps an empty cereal box because he knows she ate from it. Carla's disclosure upsets him so much that he beats her. And as the days progress, he continues to berate Carla for not having control of the situation and in effect, letting Tammy die. He places the blame squarely on her. On December 27th of 1990, the funeral service for Tammy is conducted and by the next day, friends of the couple reported that Paul and Carla seemed in shock at Tammy's funeral. At times, they almost seemed spaced out. They stayed quietly together, barely interacting with anyone. And it's noticed that Paul was stroking Tammy's hair as she laid in an open casket and he placed a photo of Caroline himself in with her before she was buried. They also placed a personalized note card embossed as Mr. and Mrs. Paul K. Bernardo, later to be terminated part of a wedding invitation, with a letter enclosed. Considering the couple were the only ones to know the truth about Tammy's death, it's particularly disturbing Paul writing that he was filled with regret because she gave him her love and saying Tammy had trusted him like a big brother with a chilling final goodbye and I'm looking forward to seeing you again once I die. Carla's entry underneath Paul's was equally sinister writing, I've talked to you every night and you know how I feel about everything. I won't write everything I want to say. You know it already. If the note is an indication enough of the raw indifference that the couple presents, then the fact that Paul was already hounding Carla at the time to get more Halcyon speaks to it quite clearly. He also pulls Carla aside and he threatens to reveal the tape of the assault and the death to Carla's family if she slips up and confesses out of guilt. On January 12, 1991, Paul Bernardo abducts a young girl that he discovers hitchhiking. He brings her back with him to Carla at her family's home where he's living. Excited, he wakes up Carla and tells her he has a girl and makes Carla hide behind the drapes as he sexually assaults her. When he's done, he brags to Carla about how much he enjoyed himself. She fears making him angry and knows the tape of Tammy's death is on the shelf behind some preserves in the basement. So she plays her part, saying, You deserve the best. You're the king. Paul then drives his victim out of the area and leaves her in the back lane. It isn't long before Carla's parents decide... That the family needs space and time to grieve. They are noticing that she constantly looks to Paul for approval on what to eat, what to wear. She won't do anything without him. And they're also not impressed with the increasing demands that he puts on Carla to serve him. Everything from grabbing him beverages to making meals and anything else that he wants done. Carla seems to be happy to take care of him and seemingly she's in love, so they don't interject, especially after she's just lost her sister. However, they are not comfortable with having him in the house, and Carla's sister Lori complains that she doesn't like him around either. They request to Carla directly that Paul find another place to live so that the family can recover from the devastating loss of their beloved Tammy. Carla is terrified to tell Paul he has to leave she knows he will lose his temper he does get very upset and says he will never go back to their home again now the situation is tricky he can't leave carla at home with her family she may cave and say something about tammy or just say the wrong thing in general about paul and his abuse he can't trust her to be away from him and conversely she can't refuse to move in with him. She can't upset Paul so much that he reveals anything about Tammy's death to her family either. So Paul moves out into his own place, a bungalow in Port Dalhousie on 57 Bayview Drive for February the 1st. Again, her mother and father's concern about Paul not having a proper job and the house he chose for them, which seemed out of the price range for a young couple carla was in it now and had to move into the new house with paul it was there that she begins to be more and more isolated from her family and more controlled by paul paul still unemployed begins smuggling cigarettes from the united states into canada with his friend van smearness in order to have some type of income he also collected unemployment benefits from social services He had failed his provincial accountancy exam, so those doors were closed now. He's making about $1,000 a week, and Carla is still working as a veterinary assistant, but she's only bringing in $9 an hour. So Paul turns a room on the second floor of the house into his music sanctum, where he houses his expensive recording equipment. He writes and records rap music for long hours every day under the name young hype, and later rebel hype. It's terrible and uninspired, but Carla will tell people that he's about to sign a big record deal anytime. And there's an incident where Carla's pet iguana bites Paul and he becomes irate. He cuts the animal's head off and barbecues it, later eating the body parts in front of Carla. Yet she's still smitten with her soon-to-be husband, She is more annoyed with her family, who are not excited about the upcoming nuptials as she and Paul are. Less than two months after Tammy's death, Carla wrote the following in a letter to her friend, Debbie Purdy. Fuck my parents. They're being so stupid, only thinking of themselves. My father doesn't even want us to have a wedding anymore. He thinks we should just go to City Hall. Screw that. We're having a good time. If he wants to sit at home and be miserable, he's welcome to. When the couple met with the Homolkas to plan the wedding, they had just spent a large amount of savings to pay for the unexpected costs around Tammy's funeral. When they suggested limiting some of the wedding budget, Paul callously told them that they could remortgage their home instead. Carla, knowing Paul would not only make her life miserable if she sided with them, and knowing of his threats to tell her parents of her role in Tammy's death, could only sit and agree at Paul's side. Truthfully, she wanted an exorbitant wedding anyway. On the way home, Paul complained to Carla that her family was cheap. By March 25th of 1991, Carla secures more Halcyon at Paul's request. These are in pill form so they can be administered to unsuspecting victims in their food or drink. By May 28th, in attempts to solve the Scarborough rapist case, a composite sketch is secured and it begins circulation. It really does have a striking similarity to Paul Bernardo. By June 7th of 1991, Jane Doe is brought back to the MOCA's home at 57 Bayview Drive. She is drugged with Carla's pills and sexually assaulted by both Carla and Paul. She's evidently liberated from the couple and makes it home alive. It's later determined that the victim was the young girl that Carla had befriended at the veterinary clinic. She had invited her to come and see their new home. The young girl is chagrined by Carla, admiring her as a sophisticated and beautiful woman that she looks up to. Carla takes a photo of them together using an automatic timer, where the young girl is seen with her arm around Carla as Carla smiles into the camera with her. After plying her with cocktails, Carla calls Paul and tells him she has a surprise wedding gift for him. When he returns home, the young girl is drugged and fell asleep. They film the assault as they commit it together, and the victim wakes up the next day feeling sick to her stomach, but doesn't immediately connect that she's been raped by the couple. It would later be revealed that Carla sexually assaults the young girl that she's befriended, while making malicious grinning faces towards the camera. Paul begins buying the girl gifts, and she'll be invited over again and again in the coming months for another visit. Although she apologizes profusely before she leaves, embarrassed, believing that she drank too much and possibly offended them. Her visits will become less and less after she tells her horse riding instructor about Paul and she relates the unusual relationship that the older couple has with her mother. She would have to sneak around to be able to visit the older couple. Leslie Erin Mahaffey was born on July 5th in 1976. Her brother Ryan arrived a few years later. They were raised by her mother Deborah, a teacher, and father Dan, an oceanographer. They lived in Burlington, Ontario. Where Leslie attended Robinson High School. Although strikingly beautiful, she was also a typical teen. She was popular and outgoing. She loved the beach, reading, and baking. Her and her mother were very close, and her father, being out of town a lot for work, brought them even closer together. Leslie was close with her little brother, too. They were always laughing together, and they had many family videos of them dancing and giggling. Leslie was smart, and she wanted to get into marine biology when she finished high school because she was fascinated by water animals. As Leslie was going through her teens, like many of the youngsters finding their way into adulthood, she rebelled by skipping class, experimenting with sex, and had been caught shoplifting. She also acted in defiance of ground rules in the past and had run away from home. Her parents were trying to do what they could to keep her accountable, and that included forcing their hand with some tough love. In the late hours of June 14th, early hours of the 15th in 1991, Paul Bernardo is out stealing license plates. She was coming home late after attending a wake for a school friend named Chris Evans who had been killed in a car accident. She went with friends to a gathering in the woods where they did some drinking and consoled one another. By 2 a.m. the evening was ending and Leslie headed towards home with some friends. Arriving there she discovered the side door was locked but assured her friends the front door would be open and she would make her way in fine. When she went around to the front door, she discovered that her parents had locked the door as punishment for her continued disrespect for the agreed-upon curfew. She walked back to use a payphone at Max Milk on Upper Middle Road, where she asked a friend if she could sleep over at her place. After her friend told her it wasn't a good idea, she decided she would have to face the music and go back to the house. She'd have to wake up her mom so that she could be let in. It was then, near 2.30 in the morning, that she encountered Paul Bernardo, as he was waiting near her yard on Keller Court, after spotting her walking along the street. He approached her claiming that he was in the area to do a break and enter at her neighbor's home. Unfazed, she asked him if he had a cigarette, and he told her he had some in his vehicle. As they walked together to the vehicle, he suddenly wrapped his sweatshirt around her head and forced her into the car. Managing to get her out of the vehicle and into his home, he tells Carla that he's secured a new playmate. Carla had been asleep, and just went back to bed. The details involved in the capture and torture of Leslie are terrifying, but won't fully be known to anyone in the public until much later on, when the video that Paul makes, keeping meticulous detail of the days that she's held with the Bernardos, is discovered. During the hours that Leslie is there, Carla takes her dog Buddy out for walks, Reads and relaxes. She has no reaction of anger or concern until she sees that Paul served alcohol to their captive in her not yet used French crystal champagne flutes. That made her angry more than anything else. The next day, Leslie failed to attend the funeral service for her friend Chris, and her mother was concerned. She called the police because she felt something was terribly wrong. By June 15th, Leslie's reported missing and the police began searching for her. The news shocks the comfortable neighborhood and beyond. By June 17th and 18th, Leslie's murder had to be taken care of in Carla's mind because they were to have a Father's Day dinner with her parents. They hid her body in the cold room and keep guard of the door when her mother offers to go and get fixings from the basement. Paul uses saws that were left to him by his grandfather and dismembers Leslie in the basement. He obtains a concrete mix from a local hardware store and attempts to secure the body in blocks as to prevent them from ever being discovered. Carla was very upset and she refused to help Paul take care of it. It was one of only a few times she refused to help him and wasn't beaten. He and Carla together dispose of the blocks in a nearby body of water, believing they will likely never be found. When they return, Carla cleans the bungalow thoroughly so no evidence of a crime can be detected. When Leslie doesn't contact her family on her birthday... Debbie Mahaffey decided to file that paperwork, declaring her a runaway. She had been gone for two weeks. Debbie knew she didn't just run away, something was wrong. A couple of weeks later, on June 29, 1991, a sunny Saturday in St. Catharines, Ontario, a couple was out canoeing, when they came across some blocks of concrete along the shore. That appeared to have some type of animal skin protruding out of it. The husband returned later with his fishing companion to inspect the splitting concrete blocks along Lake Gibson, only slightly submerged into the water. It appears that it is possible that there are body parts encased, and they call upon police to come and inspect the blocks. The Niagara Regional Police attend the scene and begin to do a more complete search of the waters, where they discover a total of eight concrete blocks containing human body parts. Sergeant Ed Pronko tells the media that the belief is that the remains appear to be that of a young female who could be 14 to 24 years old. That same day, 26-year-old Paul and 21-year-old Carla are having their wedding ceremony and celebration at the beautiful Niagara-on-the-Lake. Well, the event was fairy-tale-like, even seeing the couple transported by horse and carriage to the wedding reception. Family and friends had suspicions about Paul and his faithfulness to Carla already. There had also been friction in the bride's side of the family, as Carla wanted to have her lavish celebration, even while her family was still reeling from the accidental death of her younger sister. Carla's mom and dad were uncomfortable with the extra expense for the -the over-the-top wedding, preferring a simple and more quiet event, but Carla wasn't hearing of it. They'll also honeymoon in Hawaii, as investigators identify the victim found on Lake Gibson as Leslie Mahaffey and begin the investigation into her homicide. It is on their honeymoon night that Paul confesses to Carla that he is in fact the Scarborough Rapist. She will later confess to investigators that it was unpleasant to be told this on her wedding night, not to mention that was when he also began hitting her. She would later call it the worst night of her life. Things continued on harmoniously for a while after that evening and for the remainder of their honeymoon, but that would soon change when Carla's mother picked them up at the airport and told them that the body of Leslie Mahaffey was found in Gibson Lake. Carla keeps her composure, but Paul is visibly losing it. The couple was not aware that the level of the water could change by three feet even on occasion as it was not a natural lake, but a reservoir for a hydroelectric power station. This left the concrete blocks easily visible. Nothing led back to the Bernardos in the immediate future, and things began to normalize. Carla would leave Paul little love notes around the house and use the moniker Carly Curls, while calling him her king. They would have some disagreements, she would later claim, but the physical abuse had subsided. It was again her life's purpose to keep Paul happy and keep working for the picture-perfect Ken and Barbie life that she dreamed of as a young girl. It can't last, though, and she's pressured into securing a toy for Paul to satiate his never-ending need to rape virgins, and by August 10th, Jane Doe is brought back into the Bernardo home at 57 Bayview. She is again drugged and assaulted by Carla and Paul. This time, she stops breathing. Carla dials 911, but shortly after calls back and cancels the call when the girl becomes conscious again. This will be another instance where the victim is allowed to return home. Carla is up the creek now. She has angered Paul again by not having control over the dosage of drugs used to keep the victims incapacitated without having them stop breathing. Carla can tell that Paul is going to want another girl, and soon. And next time she can't mess it up, she's still getting hell about being blamed for Paul losing his favorite, Tammy, her sister. On April 16, 1992, Paul feels it may be hard for him to grab a new victim on his own, during the daylight especially. However, he sees many attractive young schoolgirls walking home after class and he decides he wants to abduct one. He brings Carla so that she can persuade a girl to help them as they ask for directions. He makes Carla put her hair in a ponytail so she looks less threatening and young girls will be less fearful of another female. So they begin cruising, when Paul sees a pretty dark-haired girl walking alone. He decides she is the one he wants. Kristen French is abducted from a church parking lot on Linwell Road at 2.45 in the afternoon, as she makes her way to her nearby home after school. Kristen Dawn French was born on May 10th, 1976, to mother Donna and father Doug. She had one brother, four step-siblings, and a family dog named Sasha. Kristen was athletic and enjoyed precision ice skating, and her team won several medals competing. She was also on the rowing team with the Holy Cross Secondary School. Her friends found her mature and always enthusiastic about life. And while she was sociable and always helping her friends with anything she could, she was still an honor roll student at Holy Cross. And she was known for her bright mind and dedication to her studies. The search begins almost immediately for Kristen when her mother, Donna, gets a call at work from her husband at 3.40 in the afternoon. He tells her that Kristen hasn't returned home from school she calls back shortly after to see if Kristen showed up. When she hasn't, they immediately begin to search for her. It is too unusual for Kristen to not contact the family if she's not coming home. They contact the police and an officer is there by 6.45 in the evening. The female officer seemed to sense the immediacy and knew that something serious was happening. A good student diligent about contacting her family in a small city, and not a friend or neighbor has any idea where she would be, something is wrong. A shoe belonging to Kristen is found in the parking lot at the Grace Lutheran Church, and a witness reports seeing a scuffle in the parking lot around the time. It describes two people forcing a girl into a car that's described as a cream-colored Camaro. Later, Carla would tell of being pushed down twice by Kristen and that she fought to get away, but eventually was overpowered by Paul and intimidated into the vehicle by his knife at her neck. Unfortunately, the vehicle had been misidentified by the witnesses and it was actually a sporty type gold Nissan 240SX. A torn piece of a map of Scarborough and a lock of brown hair is found when investigators search the rest of the parking lot. A large and costly task force called Green Ribbon, headed by Inspector Vince Beaven, the man whose job will be to apprehend the perpetrators of the French and Mahaffey murders. He was left with small clues that he couldn't interpret, and not much else. He should have had enough experience to know that eyewitness accounts are commonly unreliable and should be considered cautiously. Glaringly, he had little field work under his belt and had a reputation for incompetence. Yet he took orders well and didn't think too far outside the box. Many felt his father, as a senior member in the Niagara Regional Police Force, may have helped him along into such a big role as inspector may have been over his capabilities unfortunately he took the claim of the two men in a cream-colored camaro seen scrambling around the vehicle at the site of kristen's abduction as accurate and he ran with those details full force and used most of his resources to set up a system of locating the misidentified vehicle even creating a sticker system In which people whose vehicles were screened and ruled out were placed out on their windshield so people knew that that car was cleared it took focus from other leads and wasted a lot of manpower that may have proven useful in almost any other direction paul would later make jokes at the ineptness of the police investigation saying they can't even get the car right Carla and Paul are both involved in the torture and sexual assault of Kristen French. When they get her into the house, Carla unplugs the phones and makes sure the windows are covered and all doors are locked. In this attack, they don't have their victim blindfolded, but she is forced to drink volumes of alcohol. In a painfully brutal move, Carla and Paul force her to watch the videos that they recorded of Leslie Mahaffey for a while. And they will use the same electrical cord for her murder that was used in the video of Leslie Mahaffey's. In the meantime, the media is reporting Kristen's disappearance all the time. And all the while, Carla is going to her day job as normal. While they each have different accounts of who is responsible for her death, it would appear that each one is equally responsible in the big picture. Paul, again, is keen to record much of the assault. And it is clear from those recordings that Carla is a willing participant in the events that occur over a series of days. She often takes on the role of coach during the recordings, advising Kristen what to do during the assault so that Paul's frustration is minimized. He still loses his temper when she doesn't hit all cues or appear enthusiastic enough. A few times, pausing the recording to adjust her attitude before resuming the assault. It also appears as time goes on that Kristen is becoming less submissive and she makes some confrontational comments towards Paul. In an unfortunate moment early in her abduction, Kristen marked that Paul was a bastard and he couldn't expunge it from his thoughts. As he coaxed her into saying what he wanted and performing acts on him and for him between beatings, she had no way of knowing Paul's mother would call him a bastard child and the deep trauma he associated with that experience. Once she said it, There was no going back. He was locked in on the comment and asked her why she called him that several times. As many times as she apologized and tried to flatter him, he kept returning to that comment as time went on. He had deep control impulses, yet Paul was not too cautious to avoid leaving her alone with Carla. He leaves to rent movies and get dinner, but his control instincts are spot on. No attempt is made by Carla to release Kristen. It's reported that Kristen, when asked what she wants to eat, purposely requests a meal from the furthest place away that she can think of, Swiss chalet, hoping that she may be able to escape or perhaps convince Carla to release her. But Carla doesn't have that compassion. Instead, she engages her in girl talk and they play with makeup while... Carla keeps a rubber mallet in close proximity. During her confinement, in a particularly cruel move, Paul has Kristen watch a show that was broadcast to help investigators get a lead in finding her. She sees her dad on the broadcast, emotionally pleading for someone to come forward with information. The broadcast also includes a round table where a profile of the offender is created. After three days of abuse and finally ending in tragic murder, all recorded for Paul to watch again later, the couple leaves for Easter dinner with Carla's family. Paul was not inclined to go, but Carla felt for an alibi. It was important that they kept their commitments. She cleaned the home of as much evidence as possible and then got ready for dinner. While drying her hair, she lost her composure. It began washing up on her as she yelled at Paul that she couldn't keep living this way. The stress was too much. Paul, always knowing the right way to handle people, didn't go to violence. Rather, he went to her and he assured her that they had covered his tracks well and that she was such a good wife, telling her how much he loved her. Her desperate need for reassurance and some kind of affection led her to drop it and not pursue a fight. She was calm and submissive once again. Crisis averted, for now. Paul knows in this power structure he needs her as an accomplice as much as she needs his affections. They attend the dinner together, where the subject, of course, turns to the missing girl. Paul expresses his disdain at the violence happening in the quiet suburb pointing out that he left Toronto to get away from all of the violence, saying, I hope I didn't make the wrong choice. After the meal and on the ride home, it was decided that they would get rid of their victim on their way home by wrapping her in a blanket and putting her in the car to drive out to Burlington. They found a dumping site where people would discard of large items that the regular garbage pickup would not take. Rather than paying the fees to use a city dump, they would discard things out in the area by roller coaster road. It didn't cross Paul's mind that it would be a likely place for people to go searching for metal items that could be recycled for money. Perhaps he did want her to be found. His attempts to hide the victim were minimal with just some leaves and brush. Carla and Paul's marriage is devolving quickly. His poor treatment of her is wearing her down. He had a history of complaining that there was not enough room in the bed. So Carla had to sleep on the floor. Eventually, he gave her a foam pad to use. It was for himself, but it prevented the fitted sheet from fitting properly. So he let her use it. She would be punished for not taking care of menial things for him, such as recording a TV show. She would be forced to stay up until early morning, writing out lines of punishment. I promise not to forget to tape The Simpsons on Thursday nights at 8pm. She begins to believe that he has some supernatural power to somehow know what she's thinking only minutes before she began to feel the pull of wishing the relationship could be more normal. But she felt controlled and that led to confusion because she still had affection for him. She loved him so much that she would stock up on I'm sorry cards so that she could have them on hand to leave apology notes to Paul whenever she upset him. His abuse was beyond sinister. As she later admitted, He would make her eat his feces and participate in more and more unpleasant sexual acts that were more on the side of degrading than kinky. It was these events that Carla maintained wore her down into complying with him on everything. Later, describing that she felt she only had a few unpleasant choices in the relationship, either stay with him and inevitably die, or leave him and live in fear. The walls began closing in. Please join me for the next episode, where, in part two, we will explore how responsible Carla is in the death of Leslie Mahaffey, Kristen French, and her own sister, Tammy Homoka.